Hello everyone, happy Wednesday. Welcome back to another episode of Killer Instinct, you guys. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you are new here, hi, my name is Savannah and I am your host of Killer Instinct. Make sure you guys go ahead and hit that subscribe button. That way you never miss an episode. We post weekly here every Wednesday and you are not going to want to miss it. So before we get into today's episode or the theories for last week or any of that, there is absolutely no way I could continue without acknowledging what is going on in the world right now. I have been quiet and off of social media lately for personal unrelated reasons, but it would be wildly unacceptable for me to not speak up today. If you are unfamiliar with what I am referring to right now in the United States, there are a bunch of protests and looting going around in the country that sparked due to the senseless and torturous murder of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, and Breonna Taylor, and countless others, which connects to the issue of Black Lives Matter. I have realized over these past couple days and just processing everything and watching everything, there is absolutely no good that comes with staying silent. Staying silent adds to the problem, and that is something that I am not willing to do. It's time to wake up, and it's way past the time to wake up. Be a part of the change. Do not be complicit. Do not be silent. No one is born racist. You are not born caring about the color of someone skin. You're just not. So if it's something you have to unteach yourself, then unteach yourself. Figure it out. Figure out a way to do it. And while I have stayed more so on the silent side of social media, I have still been on there and have been watching everything and reading everything. And there is one post on there that I really do love. And it says, I am not black, but I see you. I am not black, but I hear you. I am not black, but I will mourn with you. I'm not black, but I respect you. I'm not black, but I will fight for you. And I stand by this completely. You should not feel okay with this. You should not sit back and watch. You should be infuriated. I cannot believe that we still live in a world where people are judged by the color of their skin. The fact that we live in a world where your skin tone dictates how you will be treated on a day-to-day basis is terrifying. Seeing the way the world is now is terrifying, but people are listening. And while I don't condone violence and I don't think that violence is the answer, I see your pain and I hear you and I will fight with you. So I just kind of wanted to get that out there because it did not feel right whatsoever to jump into a case today without regarding that at all. It just felt really, really wrong. So I wanted to start out with that. And if you are a part of the protests, please, please be safe. Please be so safe out there. Right now I'm sick. I have strep. So if my voice sounds a little bit off today or a little scratchy or anything like that, that's the cause of it. However, I'm saying this because that's the reason I'm not down in the protests as well, peacefully protesting. Um, Again, I don't condone the violence thing, but I understand. I understand and I understand that I don't have a right to tell people how to express their anger when every single other possible outlet hasn't worked in the past. So I just wanted to put that out there. And with that being said, we're going to move on into the theories of last week's case, which was the Caitlin Atkins case. You guys had a lot of theories on this one, which was great. As always, you can email your theories, thoughts, or comments at killerinstinctpodcast at gmail.com. Again, that's just killerinstinctpodcast at gmail.com. 
So the first theory, which by the way, if you have not listened to the Caitlin Atkins case, you can either skip through this part and then go back and listen to that episode at the end of this episode, or you can pause this one. It's not going anywhere. And you can go back and listen to that one and then come back and hear these theories. So the first theory we have is someone who says, hi, Savannah, I think James is the culprit as it is so suspicious that when the police asked him to do a polygraph test, he refused. And as you say, someone knows something. Also, it is also suspicious that he would say he was going to work, but then he didn't. He could have also kidnapped Caitlin because he wanted revenge because Lisa initiated a divorce between them. So that is the first theory that we have, and I agree, you know, I always say someone knows something, and just based off of the events in this case, it does seem very clear that James is definitely hiding some piece of information of the puzzle in this. And I'm not exactly sure what caused Lisa and James's marriage to end, but it definitely would be an interesting point of motive because we talked about how the motive in this case is really unclear. So thank you for sending in that theory. So the second theory we have says, hey Savannah, I was really interested in these podcasts, but this one caught my attention. My theory is that Caitlin told James what had happened the night prior, feeling like she could because he was a father figure. James made a sexual comment or advance and she rejected it and he hit her out of anger, accidentally killing her, and then disposed of her stuff and texted her family and Amber, saying things he'd know because Caitlin told him. So the theory that Caitlin told James and disclosed to him the events that had happened in the night prior is definitely something that I've thought about a lot, considering the fact that Caitlin had reached out to Amber and told her that she had cheated on her. The things that were said in that message are kind of things that only Caitlin would know because it happened the night prior and maybe she disclosed those to James wanting an outlet for someone to talk to or wanting advice on the situation or just wanted to clear a guilty conscience or whatever it is and he could have definitely, definitely taken advantage of that. I've thought about that theory multiple times so I'm glad that you brought that one up. I guess just to kind of pick your brain about that case before we jump into this one is I wonder if there was ever any DNA found on the luggage. If James's fingerprints or any sort of DNA were found on that luggage because that would be very telling as well if he picked it up and threw it on the side of the road and his fingerprints were on it. And again, I'm not sure if that is the case. I'm not sure if that's ever been found or if they ever tested for that, but that would be an interesting fact to know as well. Okay, so now let's jump on in to the case we are talking about today. And today we are talking about the solved brutal mass murder of the Johnson and Bentley family. This murder took place in British Columbia, Canada in 1982, and it is also referred to as the Wells Gray Provincial Park Murders. And I believe this is my first international case covered on this podcast, which is really exciting and cool, and I had never heard about this case before, so I'm really excited to share it with you guys today. So let's just jump right on into it. So on August 2nd, 1982, there was a family who set out to go on a camping trip. Now this family consisted of three generations. So you had George and Edith Bentley. George was 66 years old and Edith was 59 years old and they were the grandparents. You also had Jackie and Bob Johnson. Jackie was 41 years old and Bob was 44 years old. And Jackie was the daughter of George and Edith 
And then Jackie and Bob had two daughters of their own, 13-year-old Janet and 11-year-old Karen. So the family tree goes George and Edith, Jackie and Bob, and Karen and Janet. This was a family who loved nature and camping, especially the grandfather George Bentley. He loved camping in secluded areas in particular. That was something he really enjoyed. So the family decided that they were going to go camping at the Wells Gray Provincial Park, which is located, like I said, in British Columbia, Canada. Now, this park itself is massive. It is about 5,250 kilometers, which translates to about 1.3 million acres. And what's crazy is that this isn't even British Columbia's largest park. Wells Gray is actually the fourth largest park in British Columbia. So on this specific trip that the Bentleys and Johnsons went on together, they arrived at the park on August 2nd and were planning on staying at the park camping for two weeks together. It was going to be like a family bonding experience trip. They all loved camping. It was supposed to be really fun and they were all really looking forward to it. As far as the sleeping arrangements went, because this will be important later on, George had a camper that he attached to his truck that the adults slept in. So George, Edith, Jackie, and Bob slept in the camper together, and the two girls, Janet and Karen, slept in a tent together outside of the truck. There really isn't a lot of information about what occurred leading up to the family's disappearance as far as what their day-to-day -day looked like on the camping trip. However, from pictures, it seems as if they just really immersed themselves in their surroundings. There were countless hiking trails around the park. They hung out by the water. From the small amount of pictures that there is, it seems like they were really enjoying their time together. So like I said, this was going to be a two-week-long camping trip. Bob had taken time off of work at his job at Gorman Brothers Lumber, which was a company he had worked at for about 25 years, and Bob was scheduled to return back to work on August 16th. But surprisingly enough to Bob's company, Bob never actually made it into a shift that day. At first, his boss thought that it was kind of odd and out of character for Bob to miss a shift without calling in. However, he tried not to think much of it. However, after multiple shifts, had been missed and no one had heard from any of the family members on that camping trip, a missing persons report was filed on August 23rd, 1982. I also want to note that the authorities in Canada are referred to as RCMP, which stands for the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. So when I say RCMP, I am referring to the authorities. Now, when the authorities tracked when the last time the family had been heard from was, they were able to figure out that Edith had spoken to her other daughter on August 6th. So from August 6th to August 23rd, no one in that family had been heard from. Now this was kind of odd because it was six people. It's not like you just had one person, still one person wouldn't make it any better, but for a group of six to all go missing at the same time, it definitely is concerning. And when a missing persons report was filed, the authorities did an extensive search throughout the park. Obviously with the park being 1.3, million acres, it's almost nearly impossible to search through 
through all of that. However, police tried to narrow down where exactly the family was camping and go from there. And at first, this was made out to be a pretty big issue for detectives during their search as no one knew exactly where the family was camping at, so they really didn't know where to start. And besides that, even when authorities did search, they were unable to find any pieces of evidence suggesting where the family could be. Now, the searching was going on for three weeks at this point. There was absolutely no sign of the family anywhere, no sign of any of their belongings. However, on September 13th, there was actually a mushroom picker who was picking mushrooms in the Wells Gray Provincial Park when he came across a burnt car in a secluded wooded area right off of a road called Battle Mountain Road. The car was found with the driver's side door open and the car was a similar description to the one that belonged to the Johnsons. Now, when the car was discovered, the mushroom picker called the authorities and reported the car. When authorities arrived on the scene, they completely searched throughout the car and found skeletal remains inside of the car, as well as remains of two young girls in the trunk. The remains found in the car were burnt so badly that when it came to the burial, all of the remains were placed together in one casket. After forensic examination, authorities were able to confirm that the four skeletal remains found in the car belonged to Edith, George, Jackie, and Bob, and the remains found in the trunk belonged to the young girls, Karen and Janet. The forensic examination also confirmed that the victims had been shot with a 22 caliber firearm. And I just want to be clear here that George and Edith had their camper truck that they brought, and then Jackie and Bob had their own separate car that they drove to the campsite as well, and that was the car that was found. So the camper truck at this time is still missing. So after finding the burned car, authorities noticed that there were multiple items that were still missing of the families. This included the family's boat, George and Edith's 1981 Ford Camper Special, as well as the boating equipment and the camping gear that the family had used. So because authorities were pretty much at a loss as to where to start, they decided that the best thing to do would be to turn to the media and ask the public for help to see if they either saw the family camping or if they knew something that could help authorities track down exactly what happened and who was responsible for this. And this actually deemed pretty successful because locals were able to advise authorities to the area where they saw the family camping. And when that area was searched, the authorities found Bob's favorite beer along with two more 22 caliber shell casings. Now these casings were really important in the case because it helped police identify the weapon used, which they were able to narrow down to be the Remington pump action rifle. After narrowing down the weapon, the next step for authorities would be to continue to search the area while also going door to door asking residents if they had seen anything suspicious leading up to the family's disappearance and murder. The media again here was used as a huge outlet by authorities as they asked for any and all tips to be called in to help, which resulted in nearly 13,000 tips. It wasn't long until a manhunt was launched for authorities to try and figure out what exactly happened. And unfortunately, as we've seen in the past, oftentimes when exposing a case to the media to ask for tips, it can often bring in leads that end up just throwing off the entire investigation. For example, there was a tip that came in over 300 times saying that two long-haired men were seen driving the camper truck towards Quebec. However, after following this 
lead, authorities realized it was an unrelated vehicle. Out of the 13,000 tips that had been called in, not one of them led authorities to where this camper truck was. Because in the authorities' minds, obviously, finding this camper was the next piece of the puzzle that could hopefully lead them to who exactly took it. And then, after over a year of trying to track down this camper to the point where this case was kind of going cold, the RCMP finally got the piece that they were looking for. On October 18th, 1983, which was 14 months following the murders, George and Edith's camper was finally located only 15 miles from the murder site and only 20 miles from where the Johnson's car was found. This camper was found after a tip had been called in and similar to the car, the camper truck was found burned completely and hidden extremely well. Okay, we're going to take a short break, but we will be right back with more of the Killer Instinct podcast. Imagine an app designed to make you use it less. Seems a little counterproductive, right? Well, Apartments.com's Instant Alert feature works exactly that way. Instead of scanning rental listings a million times a day, simply set and forget your search to whatever you're looking for in a place and let Apartments.com do the rest. From pet-friendly apartments to balconies to in-unit ACs, Apartments.com's powerful search tools let you know when the perfect combination of features you're seeking is listed. So you don't have to power through rental descriptions one by one. With more rental listings than anywhere else, Apartments Apartments.com's instant alerts mean that you can spend less time looking for the perfect place and more time on just doing you. Apartments.com, the place to find a place. All right, you guys, welcome back. Now, even though the truck was extremely burnt, authorities were still able to read the license plate and confirm that this was the truck that they were looking for. Now, because the truck was so well hidden, it led the RCMP to believe that whoever was responsible for this was more than likely a local to the Wells Gray area, as it would be very unlikely for outsiders to be able to find this spot as it was so well hidden. So at this point, authorities had the camper. This was the next piece to the puzzle that they now had, and their next piece of the puzzle was trying to figure out who brought the truck to where it was found. And while they were still trying to investigate this, tips were still rolling in. And one of these tips was someone who told the authorities that they should look into a man named David Shearing. Now, at the time, David Shearing was a 23-year-old man who had been involved in a hit-and-run death a year prior, and he has also been arrested for assault, drinking and driving, and drug possession. Along with all of that, David also fit the criteria of being a local to the area, so authorities thought it was a good idea to follow up on the tip to hopefully learn some more information. When they did this, they learned that a year prior to the truck being discovered, which mind you, it was discovered 14 months following the murder, so this would have been about four months after the murders had occurred, David had asked the person who actually called in this tip about re-registering a Ford truck and how to repair a hole in the door. And the hole in the door comment really stood out to the authorities because that detail hadn't been released to the public yet. And along with that, like I mentioned earlier, the model of the camper truck was a Ford. So when authorities looked into David's background, they were able to discover that David came from a pretty respectable family. His father was a 
prison guard and his brother was a sheriff, so he had pretty heavy ties with the police department. David had also graduated high school and had completed a mechanics course as well. After authorities located David, they brought him in for questioning, and initially, David assumed that the reason he was being brought in was related to the hit-and-run incident, which he quickly confessed to. So he confessed to this hit-and-run incident before even being confronted with the Bentley Johnson murders. So they already knew, authorities already knew they had one charge on him. So next, the authorities asked him about the family murders, the Bentley Johnson family murders. And when they did this, David had said that he had heard that the murders occurred in Bear Creek. The location was Bear Creek inside of the Wells Gray Provincial Park. And this was a piece of information that had not been released to the public yet. However, it was correct information. And after stating where the murder site was, it was pretty difficult for David to go backtrack on that information like that. And he ended up confessing to the Bentley Johnson murders. According to David, he said that he had stalked the family for multiple days during their camping trip. And on the night of August 10th, 1982, he shot all four adults with his 22 caliber Remington model rifle and then shot both of the girls as well. David claimed his motive was robbery and that he wanted their money and possessions and told investigators that he placed their body in the car, drove it to the location it was found, and set it on fire using five gallons of gasoline. He then took the camper truck to his property. However, after learning how difficult it was to re-register the truck, he ended up burning that as well. So based off of this confession, David Shearing pled guilty to six counts of murder and was sentenced to life with no possibility of parole for 25 years. So David was convicted and sentenced, but then following his conviction, David actually ended up sitting down again with the detective who worked on the case, who was a man named Detective Mike Eastham. I apologize if I'm mispronouncing that last name. But David sat down with him to get re-interviewed about what exactly happened on August 10th, 1982, and that's when the unthinkable was confessed. David again reiterated that he had spotted the family the moment they set up their campsite and spent several days spying on them. Now, this is when David disclosed to the detective that he was a pedophile. He said that while watching the family, he was fantasizing about having sex with the two young girls, and when it came to the night of the murder, he stuck to his original story about shooting the four adults. However, when it came to the young girls, Janet and Karen, he said that he captured them and took them to his property where he kept them alive for a week raping them. On August 16th, David said he shot Karen in the back of the head in the woods, and the following day on August 17th, he ended Janet's life in the same way. After murdering the girls, David said he then took their bodies back to the Johnson family car that he had hid in the woods and stuffed their bodies in the trunk. He then drove the car to the top of the mountain and lit the car on fire. Now, this case is tragic, absolutely tragic. This family goes for what they hope to be a nice family camping trip, and it ends with every single one of them being brutally murdered, and I can't 
can't even begin to imagine what was going through those girls' minds when they were taken away by David. It was said that David was able to lure the girls by telling them that there was someone coming to raid their campsite and that their parents had already started running and that they needed to follow him so they could catch up with them. But to just hear how senseless David was with these young girls' lives is heart-wrenching. Now, David has since changed his name and he has taken his mother's maiden name, so he now goes by David Ennis. Now, either way, he was denied parole in 2012 and then withdrew his application for parole in 2014 when a petition with over 13,000 signatures was presented to the National Parole Board. Now, this is the absolutely terrifying part. David is eligible to apply for parole every two years and his next eligibility will be in 2021. So next year, he will be able to apply for parole again. Now, while David has been in prison, he has gotten married. And while I don't know if they are still married, but what I do know is that in 2008, they had been married for 14 years. The thought of this monster having any possibility of being released to the public is absolutely terrifying. I think it'll be really important to keep a close eye on this case in the upcoming year to make sure that if there is any petition out there to keep him in prison, we sign it. We are talking about someone who took six lives, not even including the hit and run he committed. So seven lives in total, one in a hit and run, four in cold blood, and two tortured young girls and eventually murdered them as well. This is not someone who deserves to be released from prison, you guys. This is not someone who deserves a second chance. It's just not. I was actually very surprised that I had never heard of this case before, and I'm very surprised that it's not more well-known. I feel like I've never heard of anyone covering this case. I mean, I'm sure there are people out there who have, but I've just never come across it, and with the severity of the events that occurred and with the tragicness of this all, it just, it blows my mind that this is not a case that is incredibly popular. So, if you live near this area or if you are familiar with this case, please let me know. Please email me all your thoughts at killerinstinctpodcast at gmail.com. Again, that is killerinstinctpodcast at gmail.com. With that being said, you guys, that is all from me today. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Killer Instinct. If you are new here, hi, my name's Svana. I am your host of Killer Instinct. Make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button. We post new episodes weekly every Wednesday and you are not going to want to miss it. I will be back next week with a brand new episode for you guys. And again, I just want to reiterate, if you are going out into the protests, you have my utmost amount of respect. I am with you. Please be safe. Protect yourself. And I just want to reiterate, as well as I know that violence is not the answer, I understand why we're here. And I know that I am in no position to tell someone how to express their pure anchor at this point because nothing has worked before. So I just wanted to put that out there at the end of this as well. And I will be back next week with a brand new case to cover for you guys. We will talk about your thoughts on this week's case. And until then, I will see you next week. Stay safe, you guys.